Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better, to understand why the stock market goes up and down, to look at economic indicators that impact how your money is going to respond to look at legislation that concerns financial issues. In the Plan Your Prosperity section, we look at different financial planning topics. And finally, in the last section, Ask Peggy, that's your opportunity to send me a question. You can go to askpeggy.com and go to the contact page of my website. There, there's a place that you can send a question in, and maybe I'll get more information from you and be able to answer it on the air. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears market and economic update, and this is for the week ending January 11th, 2019. It was a good week in the market. The Dow went up a little less than 2.5%. The S&P 500 went up a little more than 2.5%. The NASDAQ went up 3.45%. Even gold went up about a tenth of a percent. Oil for February crude was the big winner for the week, up 7.02%. The 10-year Treasury yield is now at 2.704%. So that means that the yield on a 10-year Treasury um, bond is 2.704%, and that number is up 3.39% from the week before. So overall, in everything, it was a good week. And it was sort of a relief because everything has been so bad and so volatile that it was sort of a relief to finally have positive numbers for a week's worth of data. So are we out of the woods? Is the correction from December over? I don't know. I do know that it did seem to stabilize out, but there's still a lot of really weird things on the horizon, including the government shutdown that's still going on. This is January 14th, 2019. I give the date that way in case they manage to resolve it before it airs. You'll know that I was telling you the truth when I said it. So we still have that. There are some weird impacts from that that will possibly begin to impact the stock market. The most direct one, I mean, so basically what you have to do is break this into two pieces. You have what's going on with people and agencies that are shut down and unemployment. And unemployment in and of itself will eventually have an impact on the market. But more directly, the Department of Treasury is still closed. And Department of Treasury is the group that puts out the economic reports. Those economic reports are used by the market to try to get a sense of where the economy is going, and they impact the stock market. 
So even though the stock market is a leading economic indicator, which means you'll see it very early on when something's starting to happen, so the market will begin going down and then the economy goes down, that economic data still drives a lot of what the market does. So as long as that's not available, that will begin to impact market behavior because the market will stay open and it will trade, but it'll trade in a little more of a vacuum. I am not sure what the long-term impact of that will be, but I'm certain it's volatility, and we know the markets don't like volatility, so we'll watch that. You know, additionally, we're looking at the impact of the tariffs. Additionally, we're looking at some really odd news that we're expecting this week on Brexit and what's going on with the United Kingdom. Even though it's a small economy, something like the United Kingdom having really big financial issues will have a global ripple effect, at least for a while. It may not be long-term. But there's a lot of uncertainty. We'll just kind of wait and see where things are going. And next week, I'll give you an update. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And this week, the legislation is still very much impacted by the government shutdown, and it's a new session of Congress, and really, not a lot legislatively is going on. So I thought that I would tell you about a couple of things impacted by the shutdown so you can make plans, work around it, and not be expecting services that don't really exist. If you, if you listened to the show last week, I talked about the impact on the IRS of the shutdown and how the IRS was probably not going to be able to process tax refunds and tax returns. Really, nobody wants to actually file the return. Everybody wants the refund. Well, they've made some changes over the last seven days, and now they will be processing tax returns because they're forcing the IRS agents who process the early returns to come back and work without pay during the furlough. So that's lovely, but it will allow you to go ahead and file your taxes, even though the people who are processing your refunds aren't being paid to do it. So if you are planning on filing early, that's great. However, the IRS is unable to answer any questions at all. Now, their information service, in fairness, has been cutting back over the last few years as their budget has been cut. So the services the IRS has been able to provide via answering questions have become more limited. But at this point, they're stopped altogether because that entire branch of the IRS is still furloughed and will not be available so, you know, we have brand new tax legislation this year. Filing your taxes is going to be much different than it was last year, and you're not going to be able to call the IRS to ask them questions. Because CPAs get insanely busy this time of year, it's almost too late, but maybe not quite, that if you've got some tax questions, you need to find a CPA and ask early, because if you're trying to file early to get your refund, you're going to have to find someone who has tax information, and they can help you out. If you work with a certified financial planner practitioner, 
Some of them provide tax planning services, some don't. It might be worth looking around and trying to ask some questions, but you don't have a resource that you would typically otherwise have. They're also working to extend some of the SNAP benefits, the food benefits for low-income people, and so that's sort of iffy. I keep hearing that it's fixed, but I haven't quite seen it in writing. It may be, you know, right now everything is very fluid. There's a lot of moving parts. What I would encourage you to do is if you use government services, you should try to contact that agency try to find out what's going on again so you don't get caught right at the very last minute without having services that you thought you had. Now, there is an organization that has gotten a very nice benefit in all of this, and it's the people who process mortgages. So because of the shutdown, the IRS wasn't able to provide people who were trying to get mortgages some of the paperwork that's required. It's a form that ensures what the borrower's income actually is, and it's a form provided by the IRS. And because that section of the IRS was shuttered at that point, because 95% of the IRS was shut down prior to this and then making the people come back and work for free to um, accept the tax returns, they weren't able to process mortgages. And so the mortgage people, the um, trade organizations who process mortgages, who have a lot of clout in Washington, D.C., were getting really upset because they couldn't provide the mortgages. So the lobby was led by someone named Robert Broke Smith, I think is how it's pronounced, B-R-O-E-K-S-M-I-T, and he's the chief executive of the Mortgage Bankers Association. And so he took their complaint to Steve Mnuchin's senior advisor, whose name is Phillips. And he said, hey, we need this fixed because we're the mortgage industry and we can't process mortgages. And so this is really beginning to impact our business and we're not able to work. So we really need for these forms to be able to be processed so that people can get mortgages. And the very next day, Steve Mnuchin announced that they had found not only the ability to reopen that section of the IRS, but pay those employees, and the money is being provided by the companies that want the forms. I don't know. I'm thrilled the people who are now back at work are back at work, and I'm also more thrilled that they're getting paid because I think it's really awful to have to work without pay. So I do not begrudge the IRS employees who are getting paid to do this a thing. I mean, they just got lucky that they have a service that the big banks want. I do, however, find it very strange. It's probably legal because the IRS has the ability to move their money internally, apparently, more than other organizations do. But it's really pretty lousy. It's pretty lousy for the big banks, again, to be able to call the shots and make sure that their people get paid so they get what they want while everybody else is still furloughed, not working at all or working without pay. But if you were trying to get a mortgage and you needed this form, this is great news for you. 
So you will be able to get the form that proves what your income level is. You will be able to take that to your mortgage, assuming everything else is functioning properly. Then you should be able to go ahead and purchase your home. So that's really good news for you. It just seems pretty funny that this is the one branch of the government that has gotten a great exception. And oh, yes, they're getting paid as well. So, you know, as this continues, I will continue to try to give you tips, things that'll help you. Hopefully by next week, I'll have something else to discuss. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and today, kind of carrying from the theme of the last section, we're going to talk about mortgages and the decision of whether or not to buy a home or rent and whether or not you should refinance the current home that you have. So I want you to think way back in history. You know, 30 years ago, mortgages were boring. They were issued by a financial institution, and typically you got a mortgage, you had 20% down payment, and then you made your payments for 30 years, and at the end of that period of time, you had your home paid off. It was very straightforward. The mortgage stayed at the institution where you actually borrowed the money. Well, over time, mortgages have changed. First, there are many kinds of mortgages right now. There's traditional mortgages, there's adjustable rate mortgages, there's mortgages that have more major payments at the end of them. I'm hesitant to call them balloons, but really they are because you're paying less at the beginning and more at the end. When you take the complexity of mortgages, and then you combine that with the securitization of mortgages. So the big word of the day is securitization. What does that mean? It means that somewhere along the way, people decided that mortgages would make great investment items. So you could buy a stock, you could buy a bond, or you could buy a mortgage. And rather than just buying one mortgage, they decided to make it like a mortgage mutual fund. And so they combined a bunch of mortgages together that had similar characteristics and people started investing in them. So maybe you wanted to buy a, they were called collateralized mortgage obligations or CMOs. So maybe you wanted high quality mortgages that still had a lot of years left to be paid because you knew that part of your investment on that would be the, the income that was paid off every year on the mortgage. And then at the end of it, you know, it would, it would go ahead and just kind of self-liquidate because once the mortgage is paid off, you're good. The biggest risk of them for a long time was the risk of early payoff. So that if somebody had a mortgage that you had purchased and they paid it off early, then you didn't have that stream of income that you thought. Now, the thing about collateralized mortgage obligations is prior to 2008, they were seen as very safe. Collateralized mortgage obligations were owned by a bunch of pension funds. 
Remember that company pensions guarantee a benefit to the people who have the pension. They're like defined benefit plans. You, the owner of the defined benefit plan doesn't have to make any investment decisions. The company makes it for them. And so then every month they get the check. It's the old-fashioned pension that just doesn't exist much anymore. So these pension funds owned CMOs because they were safe, right? People don't want to lose their home. They don't want to declare bankruptcy because people love their homes. They love their property. Well, all of this began to get weird back in the real estate run-up that was a direct response to the dot-com crash. So in the dot-com crash, people lost tons of money in the stock market. And they're like, I'm never doing that again. I'm going to buy something safe. I'm going to buy something I can stand on. I'm going to buy real estate. And so the seeds of the real estate bubble actually are direct outcome from the dot-com crash. So people bought real estate and it was fine at first. And then people decided they could flip real estate because everybody wanted real estate. So there was a lot of demand. So the price was going up. And then it went nuts and the prices went crazy high. So now what you have are people getting mortgages on properties they actually don't intend to live in. They're buying the property to flip it so they can make a lot of money. Now, what you lose when that happens is a really strong vested interest in what you own. You know, this isn't mom and dad who've lived in the same house for 25 years and the kids are like, oh no, we don't want to lose the house. These are people who are just snapping up properties with the idea that they're going to flip them. And combine that with really strange lending practices. And I'm using the word strange because I don't want to be too pejorative, but they were really strange lending practices where when you want to get the loan, they would ask you how much money you made. You know, go back to why do we have to have the IRS open to process mortgages right now? Well, because now they want to see what your income was on last year's IRS on your 1040 form. That's because back in 2008, people were lying and they're like, oh, I made $75,000 last year, you know, and they made 30. And so people weren't telling the truth and they were being allowed not to tell the truth because no one was checking. That's why checking income through the IRS is a very good lending practice because it keeps people from getting creative and as a result, getting in over their head. So if somebody's just kind of told you how much money that they have and they bought way too much house, you would think that the credit rating agencies would like, whoa, okay, so this doesn't look like a very good mortgage. If I'm going to rank it like a bond, I'm going to say, yeah, this mortgage doesn't look very good. But the issue was the credit rating agencies weren't doing their jobs either. So collateralized mortgage obligations filled with mortgages on inflated property from people who didn't care if they lived in it or not, who lied about their income, were being listed as safe. So pension funds were buying them because all they were really looking at were the ratings. They didn't really, and nobody really wanted to see what was going on. But if you've gotten an A rating from a credit bureau, you kind of assume that the investment is okay. And we know the end of the story. 
we know that the whole thing blew up and eventually people weren't able to sell those properties and people left with mortgages. They couldn't pay. They didn't pay. The CMOs collapsed. And this is why so many of the pension funds almost went under. This is also why the Great Recession of 2008 was actually not about the stock market. It was about the lending market, and it was about fixed income investments like CMOs. The market crashed as a result of all of this, not as the cause of it. So when you're looking at mortgages and you're wondering, why is it so dadgum hard to get a mortgage today? It's because of all of that. And we've put some things in place, and I really I think we're not anywhere close to anything like that happening again. I know some properties are going up in value, but I think some of the fail safes will do a better job. You know, we'll find something else to bubble, like Bitcoin. We'll find something else to screw up, but I'm not sure that I think the mortgage market is where the next market screw up will come from, even though it's where everyone's afraid, because there's still people today, you know, 18, 19 years after the tech bubble, who won't buy technology. So there's a lot of long-term fear, but I'm not sure really in the mortgage market that it's that warranted. So there's your history of mortgages. Now, if all of that has made you think, wow, I don't think I want to buy a house, I would like to really tell you right here, because everybody acts like owning a home is the great American dream. And, oh, no, you have to buy a home. No, you don't want to rent. You know, if owning a home isn't for you, that is an okay decision. You do need to look at the financial consequences of it. You need to realize that you'll always be making payments if you opt not to buy But owning a home isn't for everyone. And sometimes now with student loan debt, it can be very hard to qualify. So owning a home may be a very long process for some of you, and that's fine. You do not need to buy a home. If you want to buy a home, be very careful you understand your mortgage because mortgage complexity has not gotten much better since 2008. So you need to read your mortgage. You need to get a hold of somebody who knows how to read a mortgage if you don't, so that you know what's going on, so you understand what you're agreeing to. If you've got a variable rate mortgage, you have to understand that interest rates are going up, your mortgage interest is going to go up. So, you know, a fixed interest rate isn't going to do that, a variable will Different kinds of loans will typically have different kinds of interest rates. So be very careful that you understand what you own. Don't buy too much house. You know, owning a McMansion might not be the right decision for you. Buy something you like. Buy something that makes you and your family happy. But it doesn't have to be the biggest house on the block. And then finally, and I know I'm going to sound old and square, and I'm not that old, but I want you to have 20% down payment so you don't have to pay private mortgage insurance. 20% down will guarantee that you've got a good chunk of equity in the house before you get started. It will keep the cost of the mortgage lower because it'll be conventional. You won't make PMI payments. 
And if you can't save 20% of the value of the house, you might be looking at a house that costs too much. So really save a good, sizable down payment. Don't get in over your head. Don't be so keen to buy that you don't know what you're doing or you feel, you know, you fall in love and then you can't get yourself out of it because you bought more than you should. So take your time. Don't fall in love. Understand what you're getting through your mortgage and be absolutely sure it's the right decision for you. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And this week's question is one that I get often, and it seemed like a really good week to answer it. How do I set good financial goals. And I want to get a little bit aspirational because next Monday is Martin Luther King Day. And I think that most of our financial goals start out as dreams. And there's nothing wrong with dreaming. In fact, sometimes dreaming will give you the motivation and the drive to try to go do something better than you ever thought you could do in your life. So I'm a big believer in dreaming. But the problem with dreaming is it's not specific and it's not really very tangible sometimes. So what you want to do is start with your dream, but then turn your dream into a goal. And a goal is different from a dream in that a goal has a specific amount of money it has a timeline to achieve it, and it makes reasonable assumptions. So rather than saying, I want to retire wealthy someday, you know, I hear that all the time. And in fact, I've probably said it a couple of times, but that's not a financial goal. What does wealthy mean to you? So you have to define how much money in your mind makes you wealthy. Once you have that number, you need to decide how far in the future do you want to retire. You know, retiring someday is super vague. So do you mean at 55? Do you mean at 65? Do you mean at 70? What's your definition of in the future? Well, once you know how much it's going to cost, and once you know how far in the future is, then you want to use reasonable market assumptions. Now, you don't want to assume that the stock market's going to give you a crazy high rate of return because it's not. And when you're looking at your stock rate of return, remember that very few people own nothing but stocks. That's very volatile. It's very risky. So if you've got some bond funds in your portfolio, you can't use an all-stock return and get the right number. So you need to use a realistic rate of return that ties to your risk tolerance. Well, those are the three magic ingredients. How much money do you need? How long until you need it? And how much can you reasonably expect the market to grow each year adjusted for inflation? That will let you see what you need to do to reach your goal or your dream. Now, sometimes the goal ends up being a little unreachable. You know, I had someone who wanted to retire at 
50 and they were 45 and they didn't have a lot of money saved and I kind of didn't think it would work, but I ran the numbers anyway just so that I wasn't the spoil sport. So he's like, well, you know, maybe I'll retire at 60, which was a really great idea because it gave him the time to save the money that he needed. He still gets to retire early, just not by 50. So look at everything and make adjustments. Maybe you don't need as much money to live on. Maybe you want to travel less or not buy a second home or just, you know, be a little bit more careful, but just look at everything honestly. Look at everything realistically. Maybe work harder, maybe save more. You've got a lot of options to help yourself achieve your financial goals. And when they're rooted in all of that data, you've got a much higher probability of being successful. Yes, stuff goes wrong all the time. But if you're really specific and you know what things cost, you work with a certified financial planner practitioner to make sure you're not just getting off base some way in a way you're not expecting to, then you're going to have much greater chance of reaching that financial dream and living the life you always wanted to live. Well, I can't believe the show's over again. We've had a great time this week. I look forward to talking to you next week, hopefully about different topics. Take care. Bye. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.